Hi, Will Academy podcast listeners. Welcome to today's episode. This is episode 116. And today is yet another new series that I'm starting with the Will Academy podcast. And this is a series that I'm doing in partnership with the Schneider Group and their integrity scheme called Authentico. If you've been listening to the Wool Academy podcast for longer, you may already have listened to my interviews that I did with Giovanni and Marco Schneider, who are the owners and the leaders of the Schneider Group. You may also remember an interview with Willy Gallia. He is now the CSO, the Chief Sustainability Officer at the Schneider Group. And recently, I've also done an interview with Ralph Kunert from Naturamus, and he is a customer of the Schneider Group buying organic certified lanolin. And in this episode, I'm actually speaking to one of the Authentico wool growers. And Authentico is an integrity scheme by the Schneider Group. And Authentico ensures that the wool sourced under the scheme is mule zinc free, that it adheres to the highest environmental standards, animal welfare standards, social standards, and that it is also fully traceable from the farm all the way through the supply chain. But in addition to all this integrity and traceability and transparency, the scheme is also about telling the story of wool and telling the wool grower's story. And this is where I come in with my podcast. So I've partnered with the Schneider Group um, to regularly interview authentical certified wool growers so that they can also tell their story and give an insight into their work and into their life and what is important to them about sustainability and animal welfare. So in this episode, I'm speaking with Richard Doherty, and he is a wool grower based in Australia. He's originally from South Africa and moved in 2011, I believe, to um, Australia with his wife to start sheep farming and growing beautiful wool. And I really enjoyed my conversation with him, and I hope you do too. So one, one before we start, one more little announcement. The Schneider Group is also organizing a wool conference that takes place on 6th to 8th of October 2020 and it's called Wool Connect. It's an online conference via Zoom and there will be each day a two-hour session filled with wonderful speakers from retail to wool industry representatives to wool service providers and they will the common topic is sustainability um, and well welfare as well as storytelling and traceability so a lot of different topics that are all very key to the wool industry and i do encourage you to check out their website and even consider attending um, a ticket is only fifty dollars and all wool academy podcast listeners are invited to attend the conference with a 20% discount. So if you're interested in attending, then uh, you can use the discount code uh, Wool Academy 2020. So that's written all together, Wool Academy 2020. And when you apply that code during the checkout, you will get the 20% discount. So I will link to the website on 
in the show notes uh, and I do encourage you to have a look. I will be moderating the event, so I would love to see you there as well. Thanks and now enjoy the interview with Richard Doherty. Well, hello, Richard. It's wonderful to have you on the Wool Academy podcast today. Thank you so much for your time and being here. Hi, Elizabeth. And Thank you very much. Most appreciated. <laughs> yeah, and I really look forward to our discussion today. We have a lot of questions that I prepared. And let's get started by you giving a short introduction about your yourself, like where you live, uh, where you're based, and ki what kind of operation you are running. We live in uh, New South Wales in Australia, in, a, in an area which is in the Northern Tablelands, which is a, it's a, it's a high winter, winter, winter rainfall. Well, we predominantly get a summer rainfall but we had altitude and so the winters get really cold um, in, the North, in the New England. Um, we've been over here about coming on, well, nine years exactly now. In July um, this year, it's been um, nine years. And I, my wife, Sarah, is Australian from Sydney, but um, we met in the Okabango Delta in Botswana where we both um, lived and worked. In the in the in Botswana, and I'm South African from Durban. And what like yeah, I, I read on your website that you are originally from South Africa, uh, and what did you do originally uh, in South Africa with together with your wife? And then what made you decide to move to Australia and start sheep farming? Well. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a, yeah, it's been an incredibly checkered past, um, you know, yet the, the tradition of being in a job for 45 years or whatever it is of your, and you only have one job in your life. I did building science as a Bachelor of Science um, in building management at the University of Natal. Um, but my family, my grandparents had a sugarcane farm in, in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. So I have always had an element of being connected with the land. I've had a very strong um, association with nature. Um, and there was, oh, f f as long as I can remember. Um, and I always had a hankering to go back into and get back into the bush. And so I decided to leave the corporate life and, um, and I moved to Botswana. And then I ended up working at Elephantback Safaris and Wilderness and doing building lodges and being a specialist guide and a, um, a professional photographer. And that's where I met Sarah. And we had our first child there in the Delta in Botswana. And it became really difficult with a young child and always being away. Um, I was on safari, oh, close on 300 days a year. And so it was just, it wasn't good. So we decided to leave and move to South Africa. And, um, and I stayed in hospitality in the sense that we set up a horseback safari operation in a World Heritage Site in, um, in a place called Isimangaliso, um, on just north of Durban and just below on the coast. Um, so it was a place where you could ride and then, you know, you could see whales and then, 
elephant and rhinoceros and leopard all in you know in one in one day it was just it was incredibly beautiful and yeah we had a, an amazingly um privileged life it was just fantastic um but you know it all changed when and the same issues occurred because i was always away someone was always away one of the one of the parents were always away and then we had our second child and it just it was starting to get difficult um and i always had a hankering to go farming and due to personal situation um, and circumstances with my parents it um in their passing we then decided to move to australia um and go farming um so yeah from you know from the kettle pan into, into the frying pan was um not having farmed before it was it's been a it's been a a great challenge and a, a steep learning curve and certainly one i'm up for you know I, I it's it's very exciting it's very challenging um i yeah i never understood the seasons and the dryness and the variability of climate and etc and suddenly when you're on the land gosh they really do um you live by them <laughs> so it's been interesting yeah when we started speaking before we hit record we already talked a lot about weather and climate and <laughs> seasons that yeah that's is right. something that becomes dominating in uh, when you're yeah relying on 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 rainfall and sunshine um, that's and, true and you your operation is purely sheep or like tell us a little bit more about um the type of operation you have we had um i started out in 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 the area that we are in is um ostensibly a, a breeding area so i do have we've got sheep um and it's a and it's a self-replacing self-replacing um superfine wool merino um i also then have a a dual purpose flock of dooney merinos um which i am looking more on the from a from the meat side um and trying to simplify the operation without having a whole lot of different enterprises um and then because of where we are i we also have an angus um cattle breeding operation but you know as a, as a, as a total i'm i think we sort of in that 70% of the operation is sheep and 30% is um is cattle. Um and that's really come forward now in the last two years with with the severe drought that we've had. Um you know, a lot of people that had gone more into cattle and less into sheep have now started to switch over and realize that the operation needs to be more especially up here needs to be more sheep and less cattle um yeah it's been very tough these last two years have, have have really been tough and these kind of decisions are they based on the on the pastures or why why do you see this realization that you should have a bigger sheep than cattle operation what is that based um on? it's it's based on pastures it's based on on the ability when when it starts to get dry you need to well i didn't i sold so i've sold all my cows i don't i've got two bulls left now um 
and Denzel and I mean not yeah no it's Steve and Muzza now <laughs> you know they've got names <laughs> yeah but um no I'm because <laughs> they're the only two left um no so I so I sold all those but generally what you know a lot of people end up happening is that they will it's easier to feed sheep than it is cattle cattle take on so much more more food if you're going to be feeding them but you know just the way i've structured and and my principles and um you know the whole roundedness of it um i decided where one's matching one's stocking rates to one's carrying capacity and trying not to feed um because as soon as you start feeding you you affect a whole lot of other things it's like a domino effect um where suddenly you know it it it's yeah so i i i i didn't i didn't i yes i do feed um because the problem that we have in our area is that like you end up with this feed gap in winter where everything browns off and there's not enough nutrition and it's the time when the user lambing and so you've got to keep the energy up to them and so you've got to you've got to it's just that's just the way it is you know mm. um it's very difficult up in in our area um to, to you know to not have to feed so that's basically that's why i've sort of structured it but i've also now realized after these last two years that um you know we have a carrying capacity of how much grass you put potentially could 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 grow in a year and everyone bases it on the the amount of rainfall and that and how much is growing but but over the last period of time we haven't had we've been below average rainfall for i don't know how many years um and it's just so everyone's i i so now i've i've created a i've put in an in a, in a, in a sort of a buffer um where i have in that buffer i will have stock like weathers which are purely for wool that should it go dry again i can sell those off without selling breeding stock so i'll have fewer numbers and a bigger um changing gap um that i can it's almost like a pressure release valve where I can release that pressure from the carrying from the stocking rate um, without affecting the breeding stock that one spends so much time trying to master in in that breeding stock um, and so I think you know going forward now i'm you know i'm gonna, where you've almost got that sort of thirty five percent buffer zone that I will carry in in weathers or in, in cattle that aren't for breeding purposes. Um, it's, yeah, it's a very, it's, it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned the domino effect when you start feeding. Can you briefly explain what that yeah. is? Yeah, because what happens with that is that, you, you know, it's that whole thing trying to, um, where you're almost trying to breed an animal that is fit for purpose. So as soon as, and it, and, it, and it happens where they start becoming reliant, they, I mean, you know, they're not stupid and they pick up very quickly that if I just stand at the gate or close to the gate, I know that I'm going to get fed all the time. 
And so I don't have to go looking out and also their performance. You're trying to find animals that can perform, produce, rear a, a, a young without, with the least amount of input from you as a, as a, as a farmer. Um, so when you start feeding, the one thing is that, yes, you f you f you're feeding, um, but I will, in feeding, for example, now, sometimes I'll use that feeding as a management tool. So say I've got an erosion gully or I've got something that I'll, I'll put a bale of hay there so that, or a bale of hay on a blackberry bush. And what happens is that those animals feed around that and they break and and you end up getting this, the, the animal impact where you want the animal impact for management. You're almost using it as a tool to try and um, you, you've got a reason for putting it there. So you're trying to achieve the outcome for that purpose. Um, you know, it's a whole, it's, it's a, it's a, the, the thing with feeding is that if you are supplementing their food, they, it must be that the grass or food that they are getting is going to get less and less and less. So what you're doing is you, you are depleting that reserve of grass where you suddenly then start overgrazing, which when it does rain again, that plant doesn't have the reserves to be able to grow again. And it's going to take longer to grow and come out of that. Um, so underneath the soil, that plant's whole reserve occurs in its root mass underneath the soil. And every time you graze it and knock it down and knock it down until it's overgrazed, it's taking all its energy from that root ball and the root ball is getting smaller and smaller. And so suddenly it, it doesn't have the energy to be able to, and it dies. Um, and that's a big problem with, so one of, one of the things is that you're trying to alleviate, you, you know, of overgrazing, where that stresses the plants out and then it upsets everything else that goes with it. All your microbiology in the soil, everything else. Um, it's, it's, and that's the reason why, I don't, you know, it's, you're just trying to create and maintain these healthy, different ecosystems um, and you know in in the whole in all these varying parts um, is is really trying to hold them all together all these balls and 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 so that they're all happy as soon as one goes out of kilter it affects every you know it affects mm -hmm. everything else around it and that's really where that domino where I was talking about that domino effect it just it it, it throws everything else then out of kilter yeah, okay. Because one has gone yeah. to the side. Okay. Well, thanks for explaining that. <laughs> um, Not at all. <laughs> and you moved to a farm that is called Balala, and it has a very long history. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the history of that farm? Yeah. We, um, I, we were out here for Christmas in 2010, and we came up... Um, to the New England, to Armadale, to have a look at properties and to see whether it was the right move or not the right move, or, you know, and just to get a feel for the area. Um, and we 
visited a whole lot of properties and I'd seen Bilal had come up and it was on the list and we arrived and, um, and it's funny, you know, properties pick their owners. And um, so we arrived and it was like, and it was just so funny because I just looked at Sarah and I said, you know, this is the property. It is, um, we never, it was too wet to drive around. So we never drove, you know, drove, drove around the property. Um, it was in a, it was a very rundown property. The property was established in, was one of the first properties established in this New England area in the 1840s. Um, and they, in its day, had 38 families working on it. It was 99,000 acres. Um, it was a big, it was a big run. They, you know, they shore 45,000 sheep here. Um, and slowly with time and succession and it ended up where we were fortunate enough to be able to get the last remaining 3,000 acres um, of the property. The, the house that we are we in is, um, if not the longest, one of certainly one of the, the longest, and they're not a lot of them, um, continually lived in um, timber slabbed buildings in Australia. Um, and it, yeah, it was just, it was very rundown. You know, we started with six paddocks, I think. Um, the fencing was not great. Um, there were no dams on the property. Um, so, you know, everything fed from these creeks. Um, water security was a big issue. And why, you know, it was, it was out of all the properties, it was one that presented the most challenge. And, you know, it comes back down to like all of these things that, you know, I think having challenges keeps you young, you know, not that I'm old, but I mean, <laughs> But it certainly, it just gives you a drive to do, you know, to, to take things on. Um, so, yeah, we've been, it's got, a, it's, it's steeped an enormous amount of history and, um, and connection to communities within this area. There are a lot of families who have worked on Balala who still live in the towns of, on two closest towns of Yorala and Armadale. Um, a lot of those families um, um, descendants were either born on Balala or had worked, had worked here for many, many years. Mm, yeah. So yeah, it's a big, it's a big privilege to be able to, uh, it's, a, it is, it's a, it's a, it is a, a privilege holding onto, um, onto, onto a property with, with so much history. Yeah. And, but I find it interesting that even though it was run down, had to have a lot of investment and time and you still, you, it spoke to you. So it did. Yeah. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was, you know, it was, it, <laughs> but that's the thing, you know, it was weird. Eh? Yeah. You just look at it and it was like, yeah, this is, this is it. I mean, if, and why, you know, one was that it had good water security and that in its day, if, they had picked it. It must have been, and they had first choice. It must have been a pretty good area. And, you know, there's, there is saying that it's, um, 
the 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 name Balala has it's either a good hunting ground or it's a place of plenty or there's some meaning around that word um along those lines and so yeah i thought you know if they'd done it then yeah um i'll you know that's why we took it on yeah the bones are good the bones are very good and you already mentioned a little bit like you had to put in better fencing tell us a little bit more how you got balala back into shape um i one of the big things in there was i had in my head that you need to i need to create areas i need to have protection areas and one of those um back then was to fence off all the creeks all the riparian areas were to fence those off and um and so through funding as well through caring for our country and and that i i started down the road of fencing and getting grant and putting in my own money and my own time um and so i fenced i started fencing off the creeks um which have all been fenced off now um so there's a lot of off farm water um that has been created um i've put in a lot of dams i've i i've put in a lot of water storage and 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 piped water to troughs um you know kilometers and kilometers of it and i um and breaking these big paddocks you know 500 acre paddocks into smaller paddocks that are more manageable so i can then have an element where i can have planned grazing and actually control where the animals are going to eat and why they're going to eat there and um and make them eat in areas where they aren't so selective you know they'll take a 500 paddock and they'll go through it and they'll eat all the best grass first and then then go down the next layer and the next layer and the next layer whereas here i'm creating and i'm allowing those that grass to be be eaten with bigger numbers so they can't be as selective otherwise they're going to miss out so they're going to eat to eat eat and then i move them on and i let it rest and i let that root ball basically coming back to i let try and get that root ball to be more established and deeper so that i can try and become more resilient in these in these um testing times of of climate um so yeah i've done oh i think i've done i got to 41 kilometers of fencing the other day that i've that i've um, done myself so it's been yeah it's been yeah we're getting there you were busy about halfway <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what you just explained yeah. with the like fencing and creating smaller paddocks that's like would you say that is like land management soil management everything like take us a little bit through the environmental credentials that your farm holds and how that works. so i um a huge part a huge part of this whole thing is that it it's all the, it's this question of holism in the sense that if i let areas rest i can get more plants growing there so more trees can be reestablished and there can be more regrowth um you're getting 
a greater variety. You're not only getting grasses growing, you're getting other herbaceous plants and forbs and other broadleafed plants growing, um, which are all really important. And they all have a function in this whole biodiversity and the whole landscape. You know, it's, it's everything. There's, there are, it's a, you, I'm trying to create this functioning landscape where the water goes back into the soil, everything goes, I'm maximizing the amount of solar energy that I'm creating through photosynthesis. Um, I'm getting diversity. I'm getting a pyramid of life happening. And sheep and cattle are just in that pyramid as, as herbivores. You know, above that, in the soil, or below that in the soil, I've also got all the predators and everything that occurred on there. And above it, you know, the predators being, you know, that hopefully you're getting other wildlife that, that occurs in that other, in the pyramid. So the cattle and the sheep are just in, they're in that level of herbivores in there. So we've got, you know, with all the kangaroos and the koalas and the platypus and the echidnas and everything, um, it's, yeah, but it's just creating this environment um, that is whole. You know, you, you, you're not, it's not skewed in, in, in one way, only one way. You're just trying to create this whole of, of landscape function. Well, by the sound of it, you can soon go on safari again then if you have a lot of other animals on your property. <laughs> it does, it does, it, it does feel like that. It's beautiful. Yeah, you know, it's always special when you see a koala in a tree or, you know, the platypus are very friendly. Um, and yeah, it's lovely. It is, it's good. It's, seeing eagle soar and it just makes you feel good. It gives you a positive energy. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that. And you also have put some animal welfare programs in place. Tell us a little bit about that. I, I think because I'm not, because I'm new to farming, um, I am not governed by practices of the past. Um, I, I, I can choose myself whether I want to do them or not do them. Um, and so with animal welfare, we spend an enormous amount of time and effort um, in, in giving the best to those animals from a feed perspective. Yes, we do use them as tools in, our, in, in, in the management function of the property. Um, so like when I, when I talk of tools, I'm talking about them as, as her ruminants, um, which are basically um, putting their dung back into the soil. Um, they're keeping grasses short. You're not, you, you know, they, they're not allowing grasses to oxidize. It, they're bringing that vegetative matter back to the soil surface so that microbes in the soil can feed and so you just end up with this healthy this healthy whole system and they're just tools in that so but even so the animal welfare practices are i think just fundamental in us as farmers 
um, pursuing the best practice that we can for the animals that we are looking after. Um, we've chosen to do certain things to those animals um, and domestic, in the domestication of them. Um, and so therefore, we've got to be responsible to, to, to make sure that we are doing it in an ethical manner. Um, and I know I'm, I'm going down, I, yeah, I mean, I could go down the mulesing debate. <laughs> and I haven't mules in our, I think I, 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 it just doesn't, I, I know that we genetically can breed um, and have planar bodied animals. And I've seen it with, you know, a plain bodied dual purpose Dooney sheep. Um, my merino dual per, my merino super fine wool sheep, I haven't been mules. And um, I've bought them from seed stock producers like studs um, where they don't mules either. So, you know, that's the one thing. The other issues around pain relief for some of the animal husbandry practices like um, during lamb marking and tail docking and that, you know, it's fantastic now. So that there have been um, anesthetic and analgesic drugs now that you can be used, that can be used on in during these practices. So, yeah, I mean, this last year, I, you know, done the gold standard of, of it by having both analgesic and um, anesthetic drugs in lamb marking, um, you know, for that short-term pain relief and the longer-term pain relief. Um, so using things like numnuts, um, which injects, it's, it's an anesthetic, but also giving them an analgesic with like a, a buccalgesic into their, you know, which is a different acting and a different acting um, drug, which acts more on the longer term pain. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big debate. And I it just, it, it, um, I can't believe it's been going on for so long, but anyway, that's another story. It <laughs> just, it's, yeah. it's um, yeah. But that comes also with an additional cost, but you work that into your operation that if you buy analgesic and anesthetics. Yeah, it does. It does. But I mean, that's just, that's the cost of, holding those or looking after those animals. I mean, it's, we've decided to take that on and it's, those costs have to be built in. You've, you, and, um, and I know that it becomes a whole different game, but it's all economies of scale. So if I've got 20,000 sheep, you know, suddenly that's a big cost, but it's no different to the cost because your income and turnover is also that much higher than if I've got a hundred sheep, you know? So it's all relative. I mean, it's still cost per animal. But that revenue and the turnover for that animal is also a lot higher. It's, it's, it's a numbers, it's, yeah. You know, okay. when you're getting into the 20,000 sheep, it's, it's just big operations, mm. but your turnover is a lot. So you can, it's just, it's just one of those things that you have to, if you want to have animals, then face up to the fact that there are costs involved in running those animals because that is the responsibility of us as farmers to give them the best care um, that, that we can. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I feel very, it's, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, yeah, so I'm very involved in the animal welfare side of it, um, on varying committees, etc. But yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for for being so open uh, about it because it's often, yeah, as you say, it's a debate, and sometimes it's like let's not better go there. <laughs> But uh, thank you for, no. for going into yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I yeah, I mean, and I know Elizabeth that you know. Um, fly strike is 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 an issue um in you know in australia but it's also an issue in the rest of the world as well i mean i you know coming from south africa we certainly had you know blowflies that and they they perform an incredibly important function in in an ecosystem um for decaying matter you know it's it's Yeah, thinking that we can take them out the system to alleviate the problems of fly strike on sheep is just, you know, they they've got a huge function in in the whole of in the whole landscape in the whole functioning thing of 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 the environment. Well, I've never heard someone say something in the defense of a fly strike, so that that is good to know as well. Yeah, you you always think of them as a problem, but never as a contributor. Um, so you're right. Yeah, yeah. You're right about that. And also what I find fascinating nowadays in farming is that you actually, you know, technology uh, is also entering the farm more and more and you're making more and more use to be more efficient and to have better data to make better informed decisions. Is there any like technical equipment or any agricultural innovation that you have recently included on your farm? Elizabeth, I've always, um, yeah. So, so from the beginning, I I have um, put in electronic identification devices into my into the U portion of the flock, um, purely on the basis that um, I could. When you're looking at a hundred sheep, you know they they all look the same. And so therefore it just becomes one mob and you put an average on the one mob of those hundred, um, thousand, tenth or whatever. But because they look the same, whereas if they've got a number, then they become individuals and every individual is different in, in all of us, you know, um, And so I've used that electronic identification system right from the very beginning. Um, but it's been really difficult in trying to get the full use of it. Um, and now I've, I'm trying to work through this whole you um, efficiency and, and the, the fitness of an animal and how productive it is and individual indexing of these animals. Um, so I've always had, I've always used weighing. I have the identification reader. I can individually um, identify individual animals through a, through a, um, a wand that reads the, the electronic code. Um, I preg scan the sheep. Um, I've started, uh, you know, I, 
I had started fleece weighing and fiber testing all the animal, uh, the, 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 the fleeces at, at sharing time on the ewes. Um, it all, it took a bit of a turn over these last couple of years with, with the drought. I, you know, there were other things that I was trying to chase my tail and, and keep, a, keep ahead of. Um, so it, I had, but I did it again this year. I fleece tested all the animals. And I've, you know, and it's, I, I found a person now, a, um, a, a, a provider, um, sheep data management, um, that is able to collate that information to me, for me at least, and to be able to come up and say that the, under those criteria, these sheep are performing the best and these are the worst. So coming back into that, that 30% or 35% buffer for, for dry times, you know which are your least performing animals that you can then also take out and sell those animals before you sell your top producing you, you know, because it's all just a numbers, you know, it's all a mob based thing. Um, so those are, you know, those are the reasons and it's being able to focus on those aspects and those individual animals and um, to improve because we all, we, we all trying to, you know, you're trying to improve your product for consumer for, yeah, for, also just for yourself um, because it's not farming you know we in a this is a business it's 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 a it's like any other business you know um, it has to make a profit there's got to be a turn it's yeah yeah so that's uh, so yeah I've used a bit of that Elizabeth yeah mm -hmm. okay I actually wrote my thesis like us on I don't know like 10 years ago about uh, RFID um, but used not on okay. sheep, but in the in the retail store. So um, right. yeah, I think that's yeah. yeah. It's yeah. been around for some time, but it's good to see uh, it also in practice now. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot that's going to happen in this space, Elizabeth. I think you know when you talk of that RFID thing and and in retail, it's going to be the same. You know, one has a product, and I, I'm coming down to this whole blockchain story. In in that. You know, it's it's we as producers now are, have got a product, and instead of it's it's trying to be individual about our product, um, and putting ourselves out there um, on credentials for that, but somehow one has to be able to identify that, and um, and this is where that whole side comes in, whether it be blockchain or whether it be you know, an RFID for, for a property um, and knowing those QR codes or, you know, something, but it's, but it's all along, you know, it's all along those, those, those lines. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's some incredibly exciting things and innovative ideas that are coming forward in this space. Yeah. Yeah. And this podcast is also in partnership with the Schneider group. Uh, for their authentical scheme and you re uh, joined the authentical scheme and tell us a little bit about, about your motivation to join because I, I assume it is also part of what we just discussed of creating a product connecting to the consumers yes yeah very much so um i you know i i i think that um like any of it it is 
there's an element of 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 mass production. Um, I can understand that, um, but there's also a sector of elitism in the sense of quality of product, um, and it's like you know, and wool being one of those. So, in taking all these practices and doing one, you're doing them for yourself and you're doing it because it's, it's the right thing to do. Two, you're also doing it because so that you can farm in an, in a, in a, in an ecological way that is that you are benefiting. Um, two, that I'm also could be um, sequestering carbon into the soil through farming practices. So there's a, a, um, a, a community um, driven aspect that that occurs there um, and then if when it comes to that one of the hardest things that I find is that you aren't able to market your product for yourself you it, you know you, you you sell on auction you sell in the sale yards you sell in on as as wool and yes it's on product and it's on quality and etc but it's not actually on the the the, what, the the foundation or the base or of 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 what your principles are and so in joining authentico it it enables one to to one work with the schneider group in the sense that you can say these are the principles and this is what i'm trying to be doing um, because that comes on to a whole nother thing. I think within the next period of time, for example, the, the whole story around carbonized wool. So along those lines of sequestering carbon and, and our industry, the red meat industry in Australia at the moment, in trying to be carbon neutral by 2030, um, is going, is a, it's a, a huge challenge. But, you know, I think that for producers to um, take it on, that if they can get that product recognized as a that you are carbon neutral in your product, I think is going to be a, a huge bonus for producers and also the uptake of that. You know, we went through it with the mulesing story. You know, I'm going to carry on mulesing because I'm not getting any increased price for my wool because even if our mules are dumb mules, so why, you know, now that gap is is getting wider and wider and you're getting far more for non-mules wool than you are for mules wool. So in any of these things for change to be adopted, there has to be the price indicators that, that consumers are going to drive this change. And the consumers are the one now saying, you need to change, otherwise you're not going to buy your product anymore. And, you know, one has to take heed of that. And so, I'd already, I mean, it had already been started prior to, prior to that because it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad now being involved with Authentico, you know, that it's, yeah, that there being is Being recognized and, and that there's a way to, to showcase your work. Yes, yes, yes. And it, yeah, and it, yeah, and it makes you feel good <laughs> on top of it. <laughs> and is there something that you would like to learn more from 
the continued supply chain, like once you would leave your farm? Because one way is that you can communicate more about what you're doing, but is there also something that you would like to receive or learn more about the other way? Um, yeah, uh, yes, in the sense um, that it's, it's a, that whole question of being a business and being professional, um, you need to know one, and I don't know enough about it. And I, I'm, I'm, I know that I don't know, and I, I need to change. But you know, you know how to get the product, but the process from the product to the consumer is the is the difficult bit because now it goes through a whole variety of other, you know, um, retailers and spinners and you know i mean and that side i i need to start trying to work out how to get the full concept of the full idea of of my of 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 being a part of this team that takes that that yarn of wool um and where it actually goes to at the end um is yeah i need to i need to do that more in the sense that you know and also the same uh, from the red meat side you know from the the uh, dual purpose side you know it's it's for me it's it's a big thing of it is knowing the quality and the nutrient density of the of the product that i've created or selling but you know i need to try and bring those terms of trade back to the farm as well um instead of just sending it into the supply chain into the supermarket or whatever not that there's a problem with that, but it's just, yeah, because it, it, it enables you to take responsibility mm -hmm. of your actions that you, that you're doing on property. And do you see, is there a certain way that maybe wool growers like yourself and the rest of the supply chain could connect more? Do you have an idea how, how we could enable that? More? Um, yeah, I, I, um, I'm involved with a, another a, um, a cooperative called Ethical Merino. Um, well, it's, it's based around Ethical Merino production um, in wool. Um, I'm also involved in, in um, some of the state body um, on the wool committees and, and that. Um, I somehow need to, so f f almost like agri-politics in the sense that you, you're getting involved in some of these bodies um, that are determining, or not determining, but are that are in the, in in that line. I don't. I yeah. I don't know how to get ab above that into the processing and try and understand that. Um, yeah, and I think it is important that I do do that. And um, but at the moment, all I've been able to do is is stay on those lines from a, I want to say agri-politics side, but I, yeah, mm. you know, um, you know, you know, you can't carry on complaining or, or, or doing that if you're not prepared to, you know, put the time in, um, uh, you know, yes, it's a minefield, but you know, you've at least somewhere there's a voice coming forward yeah. and a representation. Yeah. No, but what I understand from Authentico, that's also the goal of the scheme that it does connect 
you know, the whole supply chain more together. So hopefully in the future, there will be also more and more feedback coming your way as well. I, yeah, I hope so. I have spoken, I, I, I have spoken to um, Willie Garcia with regards carbonized wool. Um, and I think that there is certainly an opportunity and, uh, you know, to try and get involved in that. Um, you know, I'm one of the, one of the farms in this, in Meat and Livestock Australia's um, Carbon Neutral 2030 project um, that they are doing, trying to work out how to get, get it um, monitored. Mm. Um, so being involved, you know, in being involved in that, um, so that there's a positive on your product side, but also there's a positive for humanity. You know, you're doing something for humanity and 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 our and our and our world and and globally. Yeah. Well, Richard, we've already been talking for quite a, some time, so I would like to come to a close. Um, but maybe let's end this interview maybe with a story that you, you know, I don't know, when you go to a party or you're somewhere, is there like a certain story that you always kind of end up telling that is somehow related to, to sheep or sheep farming? Um. <laughs> there's um i think what happens in this is that in these discussions and the and the story i is you always end up with this um where you always end up talking and being um and yes i'm incredibly passionate about um what i do now and um and so it's I always get tied in and, and end up talking about whether it's the soil or regenerative farming or holistic management or, you know, all of those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the farming side is when you're always in the same community and talking about it is one thing, but it's, it's like any of these things, you know, you, you end up where they experiences in life, whether it be, on horseback on safari or walking with elephants it's um those are all experiences um that that come forward and and it's an expression of yourself and it's expression of your life and farming is one of those at the moment now um where yeah it's um yeah you almost become boring because <laughs> you only end up talking about talking about farming now you know and the weather and when is it going to rain again and <laughs> so yeah it, yeah um you try not to be boring now. <laughs> okay <laughs> well when people who are listening also would like to connect more directly with you and find out more about your operation where can they go do you have a website or are you active on social media um, yeah, I'm active on social. Well, not I'm not I'm a bit of a luddite. I'm not very good at social media. I try, um, but I have a a website, um, which is balala.com.au, and um, and then it's under my you know under Richard Doherty within Facebook, but yeah, and I I do a lot of blogs and write articles and that on the Facebook. On the on the website, 
you know, whether it's dry aging or whether it's soil health or whether it's, you know, they're, yeah. And those are, and it's just putting it, putting it out there. What, you know, things that are running through my head um, and trying to, yeah, just thinking. Um, so that's, yeah. So that's where I, where I can get, um, and my email is on that website as well. And yeah. more than happy to talk about anything. Yeah, I had a look at your website and it's really great. And there's a lot of information and also lots more interviews with you. So I would encourage everyone who would want to find out more to visit your website. And I will link to them in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, But Richard, for your time. Um, it's the afternoon. Elizabeth, thank you. For you. So you probably have to go back out to your sheep. Yeah. <laughs> The day hasn't finished yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> but it, yeah. But it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And I've, I feel very privileged to have um, just try to share a story um, and get people out there, you know, to get more people sheep farming. Yes, definitely. Okay. Thank you and bye-bye. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. <laughs> well, I do hope you enjoyed this conversation. It was a little bit on the longer side, but I didn't want to edit any of it because I thought it was really interesting that we could go quite deep into some of the discussions. If you want to find out more, then head on over to the show notes at elizabethvandelden.com forward slash 116. And I will also link to the website of Richard on that page. And if you have any questions, feel free to contact me. Of course, I'll also link to um, the Schneider Group's website and the Authentical Scheme in case you're interested to find out more. And there's also a big conference going on organized by the Schneider Group. And I have the honor of uh, moderating that event and also preparing uh, the event with the rest of the Schneider Group team. So it'll be very exciting. It's called Wool Connect and anyone can join and there will be lots of uh, retail brands who will speak about the current market demand for wool and what is required, but also a lot of other service providers to the wool industry who are sharing their solutions on how to handle some of the issues that we are facing within the wool industry. So I think it'll be a really interesting event. It's an online event, online conference via Zoom. So anyone can join. Um, if the time zones don't work out, then you can access the videos also at a later stage once you've purchased this ticket. And um, what else is there to say? Yeah, it's on the 6th, 7th and 8th of October always for two hours online conference so check it out i will also link in the show notes or you head on over to gschneider.com forward slash conference and there you can find out all about the wonderful speakers and how this event will go about so i hope you found this interesting i talk to you again in two weeks time and bye for now <music>